Sometimes I wonder about that. 
and then we can kind of jump into a discussion because one of the things I find really interesting about the film, though, uh, is your attachment to it. I don't really want to spoil the experience of deliverance for people. If only Ed and Bobby had said, you don't want to do this. I work for Dick Jones. Dick Jones! You cocksuckers! I work for Dick Jones! Dick Jones! He's the number two guy at OCP! OCP runs the cops! You're a cop! I am going to have to refill pretty early, just so you know. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, well, why don't we just talk through this moment to, to the point where you got to refill. Hello, and welcome to Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Max. And I'm Jason. And tonight, we will be discussing, discussing Deliverance from 1972, directed by John Borman, starring John Voight, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. And those are the principal actors who are in most of the scenes. There's a lot of side characters, uh, including Bill McKinney as Mountain Man, Herbert Cowboy Coward as Toothless Man, James Dickey, who wrote the screenplay as the Sheriff, oh. Billy Redden as Lonnie, the banjo boy, and Macon McCallman as Deputy Queen, who is the deputy to the sheriff who is wondering where my brother-in-law is. So it's a limited cast, uh, cast, but that's the film from 1972. So this is almost, but not quite, I don't think. So audience, I recently did a solo episode where I talked about No Exit, and I talked about the bottle film. And that's a film that takes place at a single location with a small cast. And this almost qualifies, but the location is kind of broad. But it, it, I think you could maybe make an argument that this is a bottle film or a bottle thriller just because you could probably do this on stage this yeah, month, you yes know? that's how i think of bottle thrillers generally like could you do this on stage with with minimal you, you wouldn't have to do much you could just well like big river a lot of times when you're they're rowing in the boats in the play big river but of course they're just standing on stage and yeah. I, I i think you could maybe make a case that this could be a bottle thriller even though the, the location is quite large this film is beautifully shot on location and and historically shot on location because actually the location shooting in this movie could not be done today uh, for many reasons but um but it doesn't necessarily have to be because this movie even though the fact that it was shot on location is very much a character in the film yeah a lot of this film is about the dialogue the thematic material yeah and the, the acting yes before we go on any further I, i'm going to kind of lay the ground rules of our discussion here Often we will break down a movie almost from first scene to last scene. And I didn't want to do that with this show. I, I know that there's a lot of deliverance that is in the public mind already. It's part of the culture. It's another one of those films that there are pieces of it that even if you haven't seen, you know, the you've heard the lines. Right. And, and there's 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 some of that with this film. This was a profoundly successful film in 1972. And, and profoundly controversial as well. And profoundly controversial, I, absolutely. So what we're going to do is, since it was made in 1972, and since I think it was controversial, I'm not sure everybody has seen it. Jason and I have seen it. We're sort of of an age that would have seen it, but people younger than us maybe, maybe might have skipped over it. Especially, you know, when you see names like Burt Reynolds and John Voight, a kind of classic Hollywood divas, if ever there were Hollywood divas. Burt Reynolds certainly is in that camp. And, he, and of course, he was surrounded by odd publicity towards the end of his life. And 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 John Voight as a leading man as opposed to a character actor, which yeah. people would know him as that. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
and, and then there are a couple of other actors who you might not know, but you've certainly seen. You've certainly seen Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty. Yeah. And, and Ned Beatty's joined us on this podcast before, uh, not as a guest, obviously, but as a subject of our commentary. He was, oh, what's his name in Superman? Otis. 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 Oh, that's right, Mr. Luthor. That's right, Mr. Luthor. Ned Beatty uh, is, I think, one of the most spectacularly underrated actors in that I've seen in my lifetime. He could, Ned Beatty could do it all. I think, and people didn't really. I don't think people got that about him. I th- I think we said that in the Superman. Yeah, movie, actually, because because he could do something like Superman, where he is he is all of Pratt Falls. Yes, I mean he is Leaf. absolutely, and then he could do something like this, or he was a detective in the television series Homicide: Life on the Street, and you recognize the face, but you don't recognize the character. I mean, Ned Ned Beatty was amazing, and and uh, anyway, uh, let, so so what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer a synopsis because I think the synopsis basically tells us everything we need to know about the film and then Jason and I are going to talk about why you should see the film and why it qualifies as a film you should see in this spooky season. Does that seem fair Jason? All right so the film is about four fairly well-to-do businessmen from Atlanta, Georgia. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Yep. And their names are Ed, Ed played by John Voight, Lewis, played by Burt Reynolds, Bobby, played by Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox, who plays Drew. And they're all fairly successful, and they're going to go on this canoe trip down the Cala... I just practiced this, everybody. I totally fucking dropped the ball. The Kahulawasi River in northern Georgia. Uh, They want to canoe the river before it's gone. It's going to be dammed up and it's going to become a a recreational water area and part of the power supply of Atlanta. These are four fairly different people, but maybe maybe there's a gradient. Maybe they form a gradient of, of maleness, if you will, with Lewis Medlock as the most male of them. If you, I guess, traditionally, stereotypically male you were going to say something jason he's a survivalist and he celebrates that like yes that's in his uh, dialogue and then there's ed gentry played by uh, uh robert uh john Voight. john Voight. John Voight. <laughs> <laughs> who is probably the closest to Lewis and is not the survivalist that Lewis is, but is intrigued. And Lewis seems to kind of recognize him as somebody that he can mold. Yes. Yes. I think, I I think that that's fair. And then there's Bobby Stripe, who is played by Ned Beatty, who is not quite as far. He's, I, I get the sense that Bobby and Drew are friends with Ed. Yes, I I kind of got the sense that Drew might know Lewis a little bit. Bobby does not know Lewis at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if I recall, and I think this might be in the book, because by the way, folks, this was based on a novel. Bobby is kind of a, a car salesman type. Maybe not a car salesman, but he's a salesman. Yeah. And so, so he's very much kind of a sweet talker, uh, very middle class, but is not at all comfortable with the kind of life that Lewis leads and the kind of life that Ed is interested in and and that kind of comes out in the in the uh in the dialogue yes and Drew Ballinger is a so they're going on this so one of the things we want to we want to establish too about this river is that this is the last wild place in Georgia yes and Drew to give I think to give you guys an idea of who Drew is he brings a guitar he's a poet he's yes the- 
Yeah. Drew is tremendously nice and he he enjoys nature. I think I get the sense that he enjoys nature a little bit, but I think Lewis and Ed have been so I get the sense that Lewis and Ed have been friends for a really long time. And Ed manages to bring these other two guys, Bobby and 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 Drew, on these little adventures that Lewis leads them on. Well, on this adventure, because okay. actually at the very beginning of the movie, as early as when we see the Warner Brothers symbol, we have this audio. Yes. A drunken conversation between, I think, the four of them. I, I don't remember hearing Ronnie Cox, but definitely Ned Beatty, uh, Bobby is there. And Bobby is 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 kind of drunk. And he's like, you know, you know, why do we want to go in this river? And and Lewis, played by Burt Reynolds, you know, because they're building a dam, Bobby, because they're going to, you know, we hear this conversation, you know, over images of the river. Yep. But, but the conversation, you kind of get the sense it was the night before. Yep. You know, all, you know they're all just drinking drinking beers maybe they're around a fire or something and maybe lewis just met bobby and uh you know and so you know all their guards are down and so lewis is a little bit more accepting of bobby than he'll be later and he's trying to explain to bobby why he wants to do it bobby is never really sold on it even when they're doing it he's not fully sold on this whole communing with nature kind of thing drew probably is a little more yeah um, but, you know, there is kind of this interesting dynamic between the four characters in terms of what they're willing to do yeah. and they think about this process. Well, it's interesting. So, so I'll get into some of this a little bit more, but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to throw this idea out there right now. Lewis is maybe Hobbesian or Darwinian about his approach to nature. Yes. Whereas Drew is Rousseau. Yes, that's a. I think that's a very good. I agree. So, 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 so you, so you have these four men who exist on a gradient of quote unquote stereotypical maleness. I guess we might say they're going on. To, they're going on this trip into the wildlands of northern Georgia in 1972, and and so they're going to. So, so they're going into an area that is pristine wilderness, but that also has a very rural, very backwoods population in in this area. Yes. And so they're going to go have a canoe trip down this river before it disappears. And and so it's these four city men going into the back country. And I think that's the and, and already I think audience laying that out, you kind of have an idea that this trip is not going to go swimmingly. Well, and, and here I, I, I'll just put this out there right now. This film is directed by John Borman. And many people will not remember John Borman now. But when this film was made, John Borman was kind of would have been equated with George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, certainly pre Jaws, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese. There was this, you know, this era of these young directors who were wanting to take everything that, that, that they had learned from old Hollywood and everything that they had learned from film school and take these stories and just make these masterpieces. Now, before you go. Was Borman another one of the film school? Yes. John Borman was in that group. Okay. And, uh, and at this time, when this movie was released, at least critically, no, I don't want to say that. This movie was very successful. Absolutely. Well, you, you and I have talked a lot about Borman over the years, and I... 
and I'm gonna I'm gonna offer this idea to you really quickly. Borman was the kind of director who, man, if he had come along ten years later, twenty years later, yeah, because because his ideas were so big, he was a he was a person who wanted to do Tolkien. Yes, that's absolutely correct. In fact, he, he might a treatment. He might have done this film instead of of uh, Lord of the Rings because later he would take a lot of his ideas for Lord of the Rings and he would put it into Excalibur, which was released yeah. 1981. Uh, he also did Point Blank in 67, 68. Was it that early? It was Lee Marvin, yeah. Lee Marvin masterpiece. With Lee Marvin, which there was a Mel Gibson film, which is a direct remake of it, which I've never seen, but I think you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And audience, uh, I'm going to say, see the John Borman version. Okay, okay, okay. So I went through a brief John Borman phase where I watched a lot of his films. Audience, I went through a lot of Jason's John Borman phase with him. <laughs> He, he's still alive, you know, but but his career never really panned out like the other people that I just mentioned. But this is a film. He produced it. He directed it. He had complete creative control over it, uh, over a screenplay written by the author of the novel of the novel Deliverance. Have you read the novel? I have not. Um, I'm, I'm about to. I'm about to. I, the, the, uh, the, I, I know. I, I know a bit about it, and I know a bit about its differences. It's pretty close. Well, I, yeah, I've, I've read that there's a lot of, like, a lot of the dialogue is directly from the, the book. But one of the things I was noticing in the film, and when you guys watch this, and I, and I hope you guys will watch this, there's a lot of interesting ideas in the dialogue itself. And a lot of the dialogue is, it seems to be saying things about the characters themselves. There's a moment where Drew is playing in one of the most famous scenes in the film, Dueling banjos uh, and everybody knows this I, you might not have seen the, this this scene you might not have seen this movie but you will know dun, 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 dun. you'll know this scene but as drew is playing his guitar with this kid who's playing a banjo the kid speeds up the kid yeah. is something like an idiot savant with the banjo i think we're supposed to assume yes uh, and and he speeds up and and drew can't keep up and he says i'm lost <laughs> yeah and and as you watch the film you will see that that is such a great line for Drew to say. It's almost a foreshadowing of a kind. But Max, I, I, the reason I'm interrupting you is, is to follow up on something that you said when you compare Drew, the character of Drew, to a Rousseauian character. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau believed that, that, that humanity was corrupted by, by the city, by civilization, and that they can only be close to... Now, now Rousseau would not have seen things the way Lewis does, where it's all survival. Rousseau believed that if, if, if humanity could just be stripped from the city, from, from, the, you know, from civilization, then art and poetry and all those things would be able to kind of sing free. But yet... We, and I just thought of this based on what you said. Drew, even though I totally agree with you that he is the Rousseau character, he is the man of the city nevertheless. Oh, yeah. He, and, and he meets this man from nature and he can't keep up. He's lost. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and, and audience, I'll just say right now. I'm I'm with Tennyson on this nature red in tooth and claw. That's I think Rousseau got more things wrong than he ever got right about humanity. Um, I, Jason and I are pretty Hobbesian creatures. Is that that fair to say? In our yeah, in our I mean, nature? very anti-Rousseau. Yeah, and because oh, hold on, Rousseau said many beautiful things. I just he yeah, was, he was just wrong. Yes, and, yeah, and, he was uh, just wrong. I, yeah, but but in the context of this film, that that matches up. 
because Drew is a very lovable character, very lovable, but he is over, he is in over his head from, from stem to stern. I mean, yes, yes. he, uh, from this moment on, he's the guy who is in the deep end. Yes. Touch bottom. Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so we've discussed John Borman a little bit. Uh, and like I said, you get the sense that this, this, this journey down the river is going to go very much about as well as uh, a certain ocean trip that was only supposed to take three hours. <laughs> but this film is kind of drifts. I, I think I want to classify this film a little bit before we move on. Is this rural horror? Yes. Yes. I, I think, I think definitely. And, and I'm prepared to defend that in terms of the aesthetic presentation. So maybe we should actually present this now. Go ahead. There is almost no score. Most of the sounds that you hear is the, the sound of the river, the dialogue, maybe sounds of nature every once in a while. And, and the, you know, the, the, there's the dueling banjo scene, but actually there is a score. There is a score and it's guitar and banjo only, and it's only select moments. Mm -hmm. And when they come up, they almost seem to mock the kind of down home experience of being in the woods. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll go forward to, there's a scene later in the movie where John Voight's character, Ed is, is hanging from a rope. The rope breaks. And when the rope breaks, there. There's this banjo lick that takes place until he hits the water. And then there's kind of a kind of a synthesizer, kind of low synthesizer while he's under the water. And then that's it. That's the end of the musical uh, cue. And it's kind of scary because what it does is it takes, because when you hear banjo music, it's always light and happy. And it's about it, you know, it's about living on the land and and maybe, maybe gospel music and maybe some kind of romantic you know, going after the girl next door, whatever, whatever it is. That's what banjo music is. Or or it's about drinking corn liquor, whatever it is. Yeah. When the banjo shows up in this movie, it is disturbing and you are not comfortable. No, and, that's, that, no that's interesting. Right? It's interesting when you say that because so during the dueling banjo scenes, there is this, I won't say that there's any discordant notes in that, in, right. the, in, the, in the dueling banjo, but it is such an odd scene. And the only people who seem to see that that oddity are Lewis and Ed. Very good point. Because they're, they're not, they're not fully smiling. Bobby is smiling, and of course, Drew is elated because he has someone to play with. Yeah. But yeah, Ed and Lewis seem to be, you know, mildly amused, but so yeah. So here's the other thing I thought. I recently reread this book after having not read well a couple of years ago. As I was watching the film this time, I found myself thinking that Ed sort of functions as the Marlowe character from Heart of Darkness. All right. And yeah, well, yes. Okay. And and Burt Reynolds Lewis is Kurtz. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, is that, is that, I don't think that that's a reach. Okay. Now, this movie came first before the movie, not the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, the book came before. So, yeah. So, uh, what I'm referencing, guys. Uh, not a, it's, it's not a cinematic. It's not a cinematic. Uh, no. It is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which would form the basis of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. But it is, in many ways, a story of civilized people going into wild lands. Yes. And finding themselves out of their depth. Yes. And Marlowe is a character who's, who comes to recognize he's out of his depth before other people in his ambit realize uh -huh. that. And and I, I get this because, I mean, 
Ed has a pipe a lot of the time. He has a pipe in some of the, yes. Yeah. He's, he's got this, this air of civilization about him. And, and so returning to this idea of rural horror, the scary thing about this, and this is, you know, this is not, there are a lot of films that fall in this category where the villain isn't some mythical monster, but it's people untethered from law and modernity, right? And that's and and then of course also there's just nature itself to contend with. So you just kind of nailed something that actually even this last time that I watched it, and folks, I've seen this movie 20 times, but you just nailed something that I actually wondered to myself, why the hell did they do that when I watched it this time? Uh, during the pivotal scene in the movie, uh, when Ed is tied to a tree, he puts the pipe in his mouth for a reason that you know, seems kind of ridiculous at that point. And the, the mountain man, Bill McKinney, knocks it out of his mouth. And symbolically, that what you just said is, you know, kind of explains why he did that. He was still trying to, because Ed is kind of between both worlds. He's very interested in what, in how Lewis lives, but he also, he has a wife, he has a kid, he has a job, he makes good money. He's very comfortable. He likes drinking beer. He likes smoking in his pipe. So he tries to put the pipe back in his mouth and it's knocked out. Like, you know, that time is over. Yes. Which is kind of symbolic of Ed being kind of forced into this world of survival and actually it's only when you see because i think what you just said about the pipe is very brilliant actually explains to me why he tried to put the pipe back in his yeah mouth. it's such a strange scene i was just thinking that's just it's, he's holding on to that vestige of normality right yeah. of normalcy he's by putting the pipe back in his mouth so th- i i'm not gonna we're not gonna reveal what's going on in that scene audience but when he does that he's trying to to cling to the idea that what's happening isn't happening yeah. it's also an interesting moment of that humanizes him and the mountain man doesn't want any of that yes i yeah that's that's true too and so so they they so so these four city men uh well to do are going on an adventure on this on this river and their 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 fight will be with nature and with other humans who are the the backwoods people of this area right and so what i want to ask you jason uh, jason said he's he's seen this movie a bazillion times and he's the person who made me see this uh many years ago and i i want to ask you why you picked this movie to discuss as part of our spooky season as a horror movie i mean we've kind of touched a, a little bit on some of the elements but this was a movie you wanted to do in this in this this month well i mean um there's a short answer and there's a long answer the short answer is folks it's the 50th anniversary and so i i've actually looked at films from 1972 that we probably should try to kind of fit in and it seemed to be the time to do it and this is a, a favorite and uh, and i thought that we should do it but also i i i i do find this a very unnerving film I actually think um, the first, going back to even the first time that I saw it, the minimalist score, the foreshadowing, this film had me on edge immediately with the first time that I ever saw it. And every time that I have seen it since, I feel like that this is a film that that kind of takes you and it, it kind of it, t- it keeps you on edge 
before anything even happens. Because, you know, there's all this character development going on and it's all brilliant. There's a, there's a, there's great dialogue. There's great character development. You get a sense of who these characters are. But you also feel from a very early point, these people are not safe. Something is going to happen. I don't know what it is, but something is going to happen. And I don't know if they're going to be prepared for it. I mean, we see Lewis. Lewis is very confident. You know, he, he's not afraid of taking the wrong path. I think he's part of that unease. I want to. I want to just echo what you've said there, folks. This is one of the most harrowing movies I've ever watched. I've seen it a few times over the years, and as I was watching it this time for this viewing, I was not at ease when I watched the movie. I know every turn and twist this movie is going to take. I've seen it, and still, I was uneasy watching it from almost the beginning. And and Lewis, I want to just kind of credit Burt Reynolds, um, who who audience. I, I, I wanted to touch on this when Jason was mentioning the cast, but I couldn't think of a, a good moment to do this. Uh, when John Borman was de- developing this film, Jack Nicholson was a, initially picked to play Ed. And it would have been good, though. <laughs> and he said he would only do it if. Marlon Brando played Lewis. And of course that drove the budget beyond what Borman (laughs) could command at that moment. And so he had to go with like cheaper actors, actors who had yet to really establish themselves in, 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 Burt Reynolds was a was a fairly popular B movie guy. He'd done a lot of stuff, but this this movie does function as his breakout. Well, John Voight was in Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. So people would have known him. Yeah. It's interesting too because I'm bringing Brando again. Burt Reynolds was in contention for a little bit for the part of Michael Corleone. And Marlon Brando said, if Burt Reynolds is in this movie, I will not be. So there is some rumor that Brando had a hand in, in at least, he had his thumb on a scale, apparently. He didn't want Burt Reynolds in his movie. And I wonder if after seeing this, he didn't think, well, you know, maybe I was wrong about that. Well, because, you know, it's funny you say that, because actually, I mean, nobody could be Michael Corleone except Al Pacino. I think that's fair. But could I see Burt Reynolds do it? I think so. I, You know... Burt Reynolds did not have the gift of a lot of movie stars, I don't think. Uh, you and I have talked a lot over the years about how great Tom Cruise and Will Smith are at picking material yep. that, that yep. served them well. Burt Reynolds did not always do that. But he could have. He, I mean, he could have, but he didn't. And and so he has this, His, his Burt Reynolds' CV is up and down in terms of like the quality of his films. Burt Reynolds has some great films and Burt Reynolds has some major duds and it's a testament to his star power that he survived his duds. But if you, you know, he could do it all. He could do Blake Edwards comedy. He could do big, bold, brash comedy like Smokey and the Bandit or Cannonball Run, or he could do something like this. I wish he had done more things like this, Deliverance. Now, even late in his life, he felt this was his best his best film. I, I think that that's fair. I think that that's fair. I oh well, I I don't think it's just fair. I yeah. I I think he nailed it. I I actually think that he delivers a career making performance. Well, and indeed it was. That, but let me let me suggest something. The reason it wasn't a career making performance is that after this. He he found a niche as a um, as a kind of comedic movie star who played these roles as the you know the guy driving the fast car kind of this almost stuntman kind of persona that he was very good at but was he was a stuntman for a while correct but it, correct and and actually from saying 
1977 to 1985. That was something that was the thing to be. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, the fall guy, you know, that was a show that was actually about Burt Reynolds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Without Burt Reynolds being in it. But the thing is, is that Burt Reynolds settled for being the man of the moment. Absolutely. But he could have been so much more. And this, I, this movie demonstrates that there are later movies that demonstrate that. Um that's not the way his career went. I think he knew that, by the way. Yeah, no, I, I think that he would, I think that he had a lot of mixed feelings about that. And you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know why his career took that tra- trajectory. But Burt Reynolds' performance is absolutely crucial in establishing that early unease that we feel because he is almost as dangerous to be around as the river. He's yeah. he's very reckless, he's very impulsive. I think he might be a psychopath, in fact. You know. That- that's interesting. See, I'm not sure I'm ready to go there, but, okay. but but you're close because I think there comes a point in the film where he actually feels as helpless as everybody else and might even regret that or may even think that maybe maybe I fucked up, <laughs> you know, yeah. because because um, so later he breaks his leg and he's he's whining like a child or an animal. Which by yeah. Burt Reynolds is amazing in those scenes, and and he's suddenly very submissive to Ed John Voight's character. He's like, I understand, Ed. I understand, and it's almost like you know he's in a position of I've got to let these guys do this for me because I I'm not capable of surviving. Yeah, and that's very interesting because I don't know what the film is saying. Is the film saying that the whole survival mentality is BS? Is it saying that there are times that yes you need to survive but sometimes you need to rely on others or is it saying that lewis is full of shit the film never comes down on a conclusion no i like that about the film i the film does not tell us what to think of any of the four of them no it, it doesn't we it, have to decide that for ourselves it doesn't and, and and that's one of the joys of the film but i i just want to kind of highlight burt reynolds performance being part of the unease because like i said he behaves very recklessly he kind of he he has this idea about himself and this is something audience if you choose to go on this journey with us and watch this film and jason and i aren't really revealing a lot to you because we want you to have the experience of seeing this for the first time and if it it isn't your first time i want you to look at these characters in critical ways because as i'm watching ed not ed i'm sorry but as i'm watching lewis and his interactions with ed lewis definitely fancies himself as a guy who's going to survive when everything breaks down he believes that he says that yeah yeah and 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 there's this neat scene where where he and ed are kind of talking about it and and what i get about ed is that he likes to hunt or at least he used to i'm not going to say more about that he likes to be out in the wilderness with Ed. I mean, with, with Lewis. Beer. Drinking beer. Drinking beer. And he likes the experience of nature, but he's not as dedicated to these experiences as Lewis is. He just knows Lewis is a good partner for these adventures, I think. He, all, he, he almost experiences them through Lewis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Lewis is very capable. Don't get me wrong, audience. But Lewis is reckless. Lewis is phenomenally reckless. And leading everybody... And, and so... I I suspect that while Lewis is very capable, I don't suspect he is he's the survivor he thinks he is because I think he's too reckless by half. He is a danger to all of them in some ways by taking this trip down a river. They don't even seem to have a first aid kit. Lewis doesn't have That's Lewis doesn't point. carry Lewis isn't even insured. 
you know. And he explains that. I get it. I, I've never had insurance in my life. There's no risk. And, and, and that's the thing that makes me think that Lewis, while he's capable, while he's tough, and Lewis is all of these things. Lewis is the guy you want on these adventures with you, but you don't want Lewis leading you on these adventures, I don't think, because he's, he doesn't plan enough. He doesn't care about plans. He's going he's gonna, to, Lewis's idea of, of, of a good time is plopping himself in a dangerous situation and seeing if he survives. Yeah, well, I mean, Ed, Ed is actually, he doesn't know this, but he's the one that was born to be the leader here. Yeah. Um, you know, with all the mistakes that he's going to make, and he's not ready for it. Yeah. Clearly not ready for it. But as as Lewis tells him, now you're going to have to play the game. Yes, yes. And, but... So I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try and put you on the spot here. There's a scene audience where Lewis does something pretty useful and it's a long scene. And in the scene, we see Lewis interacting. So Lewis say uh, Lewis Lewis does something that saves a lot of lives. And it's in this scene though that I wonder if Lewis isn't kind of a psycho <laughs> because he he shows no emotion really about what he's done. He's done what's necessary. It doesn't bother him that he's done that. But he's so callous compared to Drew in this scene. And audience, I know I'm being a little vague here, but I'm trying to put Jason on the spot. Um, Drew is mortified by what's happened on all sides. But what explain to explain Lewis to me in your in your Lewis intrigues me, and I want Jason to explain to me what he thinks of Lewis. I, I think I've made my ideas about Lewis pretty clear, but I want to know what Jason thinks of Lewis. I will always be challenged by all these characters. Yeah. Every time I watch this movie, every time I see the argument about what they're supposed to do, I I agree with what everybody says. And that's why, folks, you should watch this movie. Because there's a very traumatic scene in this movie that occurs. And everything that Max is talking about occurs after the scene. And But the most important scene in the movie is the conversation about what the hell to do. Drew does not like what Lewis has done, and and he feels like that they should report it. Lewis says, uh, and actually Burt Reynolds says in this amazing moment of of uh, of you know you know nature, you know what law the law what law where's the law, Drew? Ha! And um and and Ronnie Cox as Drew keeps taking his glasses off, you know he's very stressed out, and he tries to make the case that they need to follow the law that 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 what they have done is justified and they just need to report it. And Lewis points out that that's not the place that they're at, that they are in a county. They are in an area of Georgia where they will not get a fair jury. They will not get a fair trial and that they need to do something else. And I, I, I think that it's a very challenging scene. I think, it, I think many people would use the word existential that, which is, I, I'm, you know, I, I just, I just think that when you watch this scene in this movie it does what movies are supposed to do it makes you think what the hell would i do and if i did that would it be right or would it be wrong and i don't know i i actually every time i watch this movie i i sympathize with the opinions of all four of the principal leads and i think that's one of the brilliant things about folks it's why i've watched it as many times as i said because i don't think there's i don't think this movie gives easy answers and this is the mark of great literature it is the mark of great art in that every time I watch it, I, I put myself in the position of these people and I ask myself, what would I do? A. And B, what would be right? And are those two things the same thing? Uh, that's absolutely right. And I, I 
So, yeah, I, so I think that's a good answer. I think that's a good answer. I think another thing that this film does that's really interesting, and I think it's actually true, is that it does definitely play into that idea that adversity shows you who you are. That it does, that it does that. But, but I also want to go back to that point where you were talking about how the film doesn't give you answers. And folks, that is true about every single thing in this movie almost. Um, yeah. so, so like, and what I mean to say by that, there's, a, there's an early scene in the film. So we're, we're constantly getting unease with, with character development. But there's a moment where our characters are kind of interacting on their, after their first day of canoeing. And Lewis, I don't think I'm revealing anything particularly plot revealing, but they're all kind of hanging out. Lewis doesn't drink, everybody. It's an interesting, it's an interesting scene when, when somebody's about to offer Lewis some wine and Ed says that Lewis doesn't drink. So again... These people don't, these other two guys don't know Lewis that well, but Lewis does like to keep his wits about it. And, and there's a, there's a moment after, after they're, everybody's kind of enjoying their, uh, they're enjoying their first day on the, on the water. And then Lewis, who's the only one who's with it of them, because everybody else is drunk off their ass. Lewis hears something and he, he thinks he does. He thinks he does. He thinks he does. And he walks off and he disappears from the group. And when he returns, I mean, he returns from a different direction there. He kind of gives everybody a start, right? Ed is the only person who takes this sort of seriously. And I don't know if you noticed this, but at some point when, when Lewis runs off into the night, he picks up his bow because when he comes back into the scene, he has his bow. Yeah. And so this time when I watched it and not during previous times, I actually was a little bit more conscious of the paranoia. I kind of think Lewis is paranoid in this scene. He might be. And, and, and I think that it might play into what we're talking about. So you, what you're talking about, about Lewis being kind of kind of being a dangerous character because Lewis is, you know, he's like, you know, uh, I thought I heard something. And he's kind of on edge. And when something very real happens to them, yeah, and it does, something very real happens to them, I, I kind of, after watching this movie all these times, everything that happens after the central event of this movie is paranoia. So that, that's that's the question that the film asks because there's <laughs> there's moments where 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 we think where we see Lewis he's seeing something we don't see what he thinks he's seeing. I th- and and I think he's wrong. Okay, okay. And, and I know you, you've, that's been a position of yours for a long time. Well, but but I mean, I, I, I know this for a fact. John Borman wanted, so a, I've not read the novel, but in the novel, it's it, it's left ambiguous. But in the film, so folks, there's an event that happens and somebody escapes who was a perpetrator of a crime against, of our protagonists, of our four heroes. And then later, there is an attempt, the survivor of the antagonist is trying to kill us we have to just go up scale up this hill and and kill that person and the movie leaves it very ambiguous as does the book my understanding is as to whether or not the person that they confront is actually the person that they think that he is and i after all these years i have come to the conclusion that he is not okay that this film does a great job of creating the human experience of survival in i don't know what the hell's going on you know i'm scared i'm more than scared i think i I, i'm certain that i'm going to die and i have to do whatever I have to take whatever steps are necessary to make sure that I'm alive. And so you just made the point, and I think that you're right, that Lewis fed into that, that Lewis kind of, you know, kind of put those seeds in there because actually in watching it all these years, when Lewis, the scene folks that Max is talking about where Lewis goes out with his bow and is like, thought I heard something. I, 
after all these years, I don't think that it was a person. No, I, I and 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 I don't think Lewis is blowing smoke. I think he genuinely thought he heard something. But I, I you know, he's not he's not acting a part for these guys. He's not oh, putting on a persona. I, Lewis because... is sincere. But I I think that's one of the brilliant bits of the film is that we only see things from their perspective. We don't we don't get a a perfect view of the situation. And so that I, I think that's a nice detail that makes the film more fraught for the viewer. Well, because not only do we not get a perfect view, neither do they. No, no. Because nobody gets a perfect view. And so you can watch this movie 20 times, 30 times, 40 times. You can watch it as many times as you want. I intend to watch it again many, 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 many times. And each time you can kind of decide for yourself what our heroes did. Was it right? Was it wrong? Did they make mistakes? Did they kill somebody that didn't deserve to be killed? Did they, were they paranoid? Were they on top of things? Did they make the right decision? There's so many things that you can process. And the thing is, is that how I process it doesn't matter compared to how you process it. You get to watch this movie and you get to process it the way you want to because the movie will not give you answers. It doesn't give me answers. This movie has never given me any answers, but it's asked me tons of questions and I love it every time that it asked me those questions. I, audience, I was, I knew Jason was eventually going to suggest that we do Deliverance. I, I knew it and, and with good reason, but I sort of dreaded it because I find this movie, as I said, to be one of the most terrifying movies that we've seen and for all of the reasons that you that you just said it's this multi-layered tale that of course functions as a rural horror film it functions as a morality question yeah. it functions as a kind of mystery not not in the traditional sense but a mystery of of perception it's it's not quite Rashomon but it's got to be Rashomon adjacent because we don't I think that that's one of the things that creates the unease. We don't ever see what Burt Reynolds's Lewis sees on the hills, if he sees anything. Yeah, you know, you know, they're moving down a fast river, and he's he. So I'm not I'm not revealing anything because I think this is something. This might be something that you see in the trailer if you watch the trailer. But like, he's convinced that they're being pursued by the by some of the people they had a conflict with earlier. There's also this underlying plausibility of the tale that that Very I think. Much. Like, that, that makes it even, you know, I mean, I like to canoe. I, 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 uh, I you know, I, I enjoy going into the woods and, and there's this underlying kind of plausibility that, you know, the woods is often, the woods is often a great place, but there sometimes are, are, are monsters in the woods, you know? So after seeing the film more than 20 times to this day, I am not certain that, that Drew wasn't right. And I am also not certain that, that, that Lewis wasn't right. Yeah. And like, I, I feel like that, the film does what maybe the most there's many brilliant things about film in fact there's only one flaw we'll get to that but of all the brilliant things of the film the main thing is is that it doesn't give us any answers it gives us nothing but spaces to put our own cognitive questings into it's a generous film yeah it, it, okay it it fucks with us excuse me but it 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 pins up it pins our asses to the wall as max just said not yes say that but i mean in terms of rural horror this film is very disturbing and it is very difficult to watch very they, difficult to watch. well absolutely there, there are scenes in this movie folks and i'll just warn you that john borman i i've read some older reviews of of the film when it came out 
And there are some people use the term unflinching in terms of some of the horror that we see in the film. And that is absolutely the case. And it's not monster horror. It's fairly realistic horror. And so like, you know, read a little bit about the film. I don't want to send anybody off to see something that's going to traumatize them. But John Borman didn't flinch from any of the things he wanted to talk about in the, in the movie. And so there are some very harrowing scenes that, that are unpleasant to watch in the film. Very, very unpleasant pleasant and horrifying yeah but i do think this film in cognitively gives you a gives all of us a lot of little places to process how we see the world and what we would do and what is right and wrong what lewis has the idea that outside of outside of society and well, well not no not outside of society lewis is of the belief that law is just an illusion it's something that we have invented and really it's all about survival drew who is kind of the opposite of lewis in this film he's he's kind of the contrast is well you know there's there's law and order there's democracy there's all these things that we have created that have kind of overcome all of the bullshit of violence and control and all this kind of thing and we just need to stick with that we yeah. just stick with that and drew struggles with the fact that nobody else wants to do that and you know we're all law-abiding citizens we all would like to believe that human relationships are ordered and and predictable and we in this film we run into the fact that they're not and so we have to answer the question is lewis right yeah and after all these times watching this movie i'm not sure i'm still not sure and that's i i love this film both for both both for its just kind of visceral horrific elements that max is talking about but there is an intellectual aspect to this that i would challenge anybody to watch this and come away with it with a a definitive conclusion as to whether, as to A, what actually happened, and B, what was the right thing? What should have happened? What what decision should they have made? This is this is spectacular stuff. This is this is literature. I, I think so. I think so. And, um, and not just because it was originally a novel. I mean, this is this is really thought provoking shit. Absolutely, and I think that that's also part of the unease of the film is the is the awkward ways in which the Borman and his film make us interact with the questions being asked or the or the situations being asked because it's such a human film that yes. we find ourselves experiencing what the characters are experiencing in some way we we share some of their terror we share some of their angst obviously i want to say something else about the film that, that kind of adds to the unease and that is the location itself they did a great job of creating a situation that felt very wild and very yeah. very isolated very it's one of the things that made me think more about how how almost silly this idea was because there's there's a moment where they're they're beginning their canoe trip and also audience uh i thought burt reynolds looks great in the canoe i've done a lot of canoeing over the course of my life and and burt reynolds looks like he's been in a canoe a lot of his life apparently audience the only person who had had a lot of extensive experience with canoes prior to filming was ned Beatty, who was the guy who had to pretend that he didn't <laughs> exactly exactly and a, a testament to ned Beatty. He's brilliant acting because he looks like he doesn't know exactly what he's doing. And I'm sure they had a lot of extensive training, but Burt Reynolds has that athlete's ability, I think, to pick up things really well. And he looks... He, Burt Reynolds looks great doing everything that he's doing. As is John Voight, I have to say. Well, no, but but actually, I um, I remember, I think it was a documentary that was made at the time. Burt Reynolds had never done archery before. Oh, wow. 
And Borman said he picked it up like he had been doing it for years. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so this location um, was amazing. It looks like these guys are way off the beaten trail. You don't ever see a hint of civilization. You don't ever see a hint that humanity has put a hand on this area, right? Unless those hands are hunter-gatherer hands, you don't see anything. There were very few, if any, stuntmen. They did. I could read this, but go ahead. And the actors, so the four principal leads, they they wanted to take their performances and put them into the actual canoeing. And they tried to get insurance companies to insure them against injuries. And no one would insure them. And the and all four of them said, We'll do it anyway. Yeah. And I say that that would never happen today. Oh no, not at all. Not at never. all. Never in a million years. No. They should have done what Jackie Chan did when he couldn't get insurance anymore which was to start up his own insurance company well okay no very good point but i mean i mean that yeah it's kind of funny but i mean the fact of the matter is is that even john void who would have been the biggest name at this point would not have had that kind of uh, of pull no like these these were very young actors committed to their craft committed to the final result yeah um committed to making the performance in each individual scene and it shows absolutely absolutely and because of that they could get in tight when they're doing their stunts because it's just them yeah now i know i know burt reynolds broke his coccyx in one of the scenes where he was going down the river and i i think i can see the scene when it happens when his tailbone hits a rock it looks pretty bad but but so going back to this location i think that it just adds an element of depth now i guess they had to do a lot of bleach processing to drain some of the color out of this setting because i guess it was too beautiful and they wanted to they wanted the sensation of being wild and they wanted the sensation of some there's there's i I just thought of this there is an element of claustrophobia in the film too even though they're in this wild space they are confined because you can't see very far in these dense woods and so you see from one edge of the river to the next one shore of the river to the next and you don't see much beyond which is how which is how they initially get end up and get, get end up in trouble and so the location i think functions really well and the other thing too oh so, so but so their location makes it look like they're out in the middle of nowhere and i thought for me as a person who who has spent a lot of time out in the woods i used to be a field biologist i i, I you know i've spent months in the woods at a time and most people in these situations there is a plan with your crew somebody gets injured what do you do there is no such plan with this group you know and that that horrified me and it comes up it comes up right yeah oh totally and so to me i was just like burt reynolds's lewis gives this funny little thing and it's it's kind of a throwaway line what happens if we go if the canoe tips over and uh i mean at least lewis says leave on your life jackets oh now that you mentioned that um hang on to your paddle and if you hit a rock don't hit it with your head yes that's that's the safety lecture and these people have no plan. And I just think that every element of the film adds to the plausibility of the, the horror and the tension of the film. And and so one of the other things I kind of dug about the film, you kind of talked a little bit about how there's not a soundtrack. But in one of the scenes, of the, the, the morning after their first night on the river, I was identifying every bird that they were that I was hearing in the uh, at, around their camp. And, and so this to me, this was telling me this is, you know, this is this is deep woodlands. You, you don't hear a sound of any civilization. I heard 
I heard wood thrush. I heard Carolina chickadee. I heard red-bellied woodpecker. You know, I hear all these things. Go ahead. So you love the sound design. I, I love the sound. I love the soundscape because it, it helps me believe that these guys are so far away from help. I, I have to tell you the only. This you is, said there was a flaw. This is a perfect film. Almost. The, the only flaw, which today would be corrected with digital photography, is when Ed is climbing up the, um, when they're in the gorge and he's scaling up the, the, the mountains. Yeah. Which I think John Voight did, by the way. He did. He did. And, um, but it was shot in the daytime and they, they, I don't know what they did, but they, they did something to the actual film to make it look like it was night. It is very unconvincing. It's, it's actually terrible, but like, I, like, I want to say that it is terrible. It does yes. not look good. But at the same time, gone in 1972. Well, I read about why they did that. And the reason why they didn't shoot at night was because a lot of the cameras of the time, and I think it has something to do with the aspect ratio as well just didn't collect a lot of light and yeah. so and so they had to they basically had to shoot during the day and and apply some kind of filtering process to make it look like they were shooting at night but the night sky that happens in the film looks awful it's terrible yeah it, i mean except for that it's great absolutely that's 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 the only flaw in the film it, um it, it's a great stunt there's a great there's a fantastic moment where John Voigt takes his wallet out and he looks at his wife and son who we don't get to meet really until the final scene and he drops it and he says god damn it you're never gonna get out of this gorge alive and uh and John Voigt is great in that scene but the 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 the, the, the night effect is terrible it, it, the, it's the only flaw in an otherwise literary film like like and I mean that literally like in the 100 plus year you years of American film. This movie is worthy. Uh, like if you were to do, and, and not, not a class about specifically filmmaking, but about the literary content, uh, whether it, you know, and, and that can include camera work. It, it can include all of that. But in terms of script, in terms of dialogue, thematic material, um, cinematography, all of it, this, I, I mean, so there's my verdict folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this is almost perfect. It, it functions as literature. I, I absolutely agree. I, it's it's the reason why I, I bought the book as I was watching the movie most recently. Oh, you, I, oh, you did. I was like, I, I, you know, this book. I think this is going to be a fairly interesting book. And and I'll tell you, audience, I I, I got on. I was watching the I was watching the movie, and it's the conversation at the beginning, just which is just in VO, just in voiceover. Yeah. And I was just like, and then it said, so they're doing the VO, and there it's this four way conversation. And I was like, is this a is this a radio program? Is this like some kind of talk radio? Are you guys talking yeah. about? You know, I was intrigued by their conversation, and and, and I was like, is this just guys? Is this our hero? Are these our heroes on a radio show? I I couldn't. I was trying to figure out who these guys were and who these aren't talking and then it said based on a book by charles dickey i'm not even five minutes into the film guys and i and i and i consulted jeff bezos and i said jeff get me this book and i and i bought the book and he and he, and he plays the sheriff now do you know the story behind that no i don't know so so the author of the book jason jeff bezos doesn't play the sheriff jeff bezos probably wasn't born but james dickey james dickey yeah james dickey wrote the book and he also ended up writing the screenplay and when he showed up on the first day he was drawing Drunk. That's the kind of guy he was. James Dickey is very much a Ernest Hemingway type character. 
Okay. Apparently, they had a disagreement, and Dickie um, almost decked him, or maybe did. Borman, you mean? Yeah, decked Borman. But they worked all that out, and Borman said, maybe you would like to play the sheriff. And Dickie was like... Yeah, I would. Right. So James Dickey plays the sheriff when they when they come to the end of their journey. And he's great. He's fantastic because you get the sense that he he's a very by the book guy. But he he uh in the in the almost last scene of the movie, he knows there's something wrong and he's trying to find the right question to nail their asses to the wall and he can't do it. And so he ends up just saying, "Don't come back here. Don't yeah. do it like this again." Is this, does this give you, is this one of those scenes with the sheriff that gives you pause to think Drew might have been right? Um, yes and no. Okay. It does because I feel like that it's very possible that he would have understood, but on the other hand, maybe he wouldn't. This movie does not give easy answers because the sheriff, he's on the right track. But in this movie, he's on the right track and he's not going to, he's not, look, this is a good sheriff. He is not going to try to invent shit to go after them. Yeah, yeah. He he is going to, if I find something, I'm going to pursue it. And he knows there's something that he should find and he's desperate to find it. And we don't blame him for trying. No, no, no. But he, he, but he, does. he, he doesn't come off as a villain. He, he doesn't. Well, because when they're, dre- when they're dredging the river, he says, well, you told me blah, blah, blah. And Bobby's like, I didn't say that. And the deputy says, yes, you did. I know damn well you did. But the deputy, his brother-in-law is the one, is somebody that's missing. Yeah. And he says, Sheriff, don't you let these people go. These boys is lying. The sheriff thanks and he says, I got nothing to hold them for. Not a thing. Yeah. And so you get the sense that the sheriff, you know, he, he's thinking, I, you know, I don't, you know, you might be right, but I got to have a reason. And I don't have it. And then the final scene, the sh- oh, this is so brilliant. So Bobby and Ed, they get in their cars, they're getting ready to drive off. And the sheriff is kind of like, he's thinking like this is the last chance. I got to come up with something else. Like, hey, buddy, let me ask you something. I mean, I mean, I mean he's very aggressive, but he's also like, you know, like I want to nail this guy. But if he doesn't give me anything, I got to walk away. And he says, um, why is it that you guys only came back with three life jackets? And then Bobby's like, did we have an extra one? And and Ed, cool as cucumber. No, Drew wasn't wearing his. And why was it? He wasn't wearing it. And Ed just, without without changing his expression, I don't know. And then the sheriff just leans in and says, don't do nothing like this again. Don't ever come back here. And you just get the sense the sheriff knows something's wrong. He knows he'll never be able to prove it. Yeah. But he knows that something's wrong. He's almost like the sh- the sheriff in, in uh, Misery. He knows something's wrong. He cannot complete the investigation. Yeah. So so here's the other question I had for you. And this is less less analytical about the film is this sheriff the the template for quentin tarantino and robert rodriguez's sheriff and deputy or is that some other uh me you know what i'm talking about right like there's a there are these recurring characters in robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino's movies and it's a sheriff and his deputy and they're kind of country boys and they're good they're good cop but you know they're they're always they're always a little bit behind the case a bit of a shout out to james dick okay no you just made a good point i i think that you're right i would was just about to say maybe not in character but maybe james dickey's performance deserves a shout out in that it was worthy of imitation yeah actually i think that even even the character i think that you just made your point okay okay 
Okay, I I wondered because because I I I've thought that I thought I, oh, no, when I, I was watching the film I was like oh this is this is this my this this is at least the grandfather of oh, well well I think James Dickey is wonderful yeah uh, in this film I. I I think as the sheriff, he nails everything. Like even like, like he, he asks in the last scene, he asks Ed a question and, he, and he's way back in the background and Ed answers it. And then he kind of goes like, he's really struggling. He knows that these guys did something that he needs to discover. And he knows there's a question he needs to ask and he can't fucking figure out what the question is. Uh, and, and he's really frustrated. And to his credit, he's not going to frame him. If he no, can. No, no, uh, you have to, you have to give him credit. If, if he cannot think of the right question, then he's got to let him go. And he's really pissed off about it because he has decided he doesn't like it. took him a while. Yes. Initially, initially he does. But in the end, he knows there's something wrong. He knows he did, he doesn't know how to get to the bottom of it. And he just wants to tell them, get the fuck out of here and never come back. And it's it's great. It, it, it's great. So audience, the uh, character I'm referencing from the Tarantino verse, as it's, I guess, called is Sheriff Earl McGraw. Yep. And he's played by, oh gosh, what's the actor's name? Uh, what's his name? Why didn't I give him his name? Okay, come on now. But Earl McGraw, he's the sheriff. He's really funny. I, I love him in, in everything. Though I think he gets killed in... In, uh, in, in um, from Bethel Dawn. Okay, but he gets, to, he gets to pop up in a lot of films. He's a, he's a Texas Ranger, Earl McGraw. I'm going to find out who plays him because he's so good, the actor. The actor has gone on, the actor does a lot of character work actually in Tarantino films. Oh, by the way, I think James Dickey died not, I almost want to look this up because I might. Okay. Uh, James Dickey died. No, he died in 1997. Wow. I I thought he died. So he was mainly a poet. Was he really? Well, that makes sense because because I tell you what the the dialogue in some of this in some of the movie plays like like a like an author very conscious of language. You know. Oh. So I just discovered this. He was, because as as listeners, you all know, Max knows, at the inauguration of many presidents, they often have a poet recite their poems. In Janu on January 20th, 1977, James Dickey read his poem, The Strength of Fields, at the inauguration of Jimmy Carter. Okay. Well, that's probably much cooler than what I'm about to say. Michael Parks is the actor who plays Earl McGraw. And, uh, Sorry to steal your thunder and... and, and his thunder there but. yeah sorry sorry michael we'll, we'll we'll give you your due later on uh you know you're pretty great you did some good work in a couple kevin smith movies as well so anyway jason is there anything else you want to say about deliverance well, there's probably a million things that i could say about deliverance but um so i i actually have a, i have a question for you i saw an article recently and i can't remember what the film was what the article was referencing but there was another rural horror film and the author i think it might have been a review in the atlantic i could make some heavy weather about how i'll try and find the link for you audience and put it in the show notes but i'm not going to do that but the 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 author of the review was suggesting that maybe rural horror is a problematic genre and i wanted to put it to you a, a good example of rural horror that's come out recently is a movie called x which is actually set in the 70s and it's about a group of uh filmmakers who want to try and make it big by making adult films and they go to the countryside in california and they kind of run into this rural horror situation as well right where they do, they deal with these backwoods people who you know are are so behind the times that they're they're just savages and 
I wondered, do you think there's any there's any problematic elements to rural horror? It's kind of based on deliverance. No, um, well, I mean, maybe. I mean, it depends on how it's done. Yeah. It's to, I mean, it depends on how it's done because I, I don't have a problem with any genre. Yeah. You know, show me the product. Show me what you did. Let me let me watch it. Let me discuss it with my friends. Yeah. Let us talk about it on Max and Jason Watch a Movie. Like, you know, if, if somebody does reject it, that's fine. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's there's genres or films that I would reject, but I would I would prefer the term challenging rather than problematic. I, yeah, because I don't think I don't think a genre is a problem to solve. Um, it may be challenging and it may be rejected. Yeah. I, you know, I'm prepared to reject something as well. But let, let's let our fellow human beings make a statement about human experience and let us excuse me, let us digest it and, and decide what we see out of it. I mean, that that's what I I want to do. I, you know, I want to be able to digest it, discuss it, hear what other people's opinions are about it. Let other people hear my opinions about it. Yeah. And then see what happens in, in the, in the churn there. Yeah. And uh, so that's well, because what you just described makes me think that maybe deliverance actually began a genre because actually it kind of, it kind of put me to mind an inferior film, no doubt, but the Texas chainsaw massacre is exactly, it's kind of a slasher film film version of what you're talking about yeah yeah well i, I think you, you you could you could look at something like the hills have eyes or something like yeah. that a lot of, a lot of there's, there's a lot of these films. wrong turn is even one of these rural horror films yes that that's true but you know uh um all the films we mentioned of varying quality they're not this this is literally no no yeah. i agree but but like for me, one of the one of the things that that makes Deliverance so interesting is that there is this element of reality to it. That there there is some there's some there's something real about the film in a way that these other films don't necessarily. The other films are so over the top in terms of what they depict, right? That well, I mean, they're more specifically designed to appeal to an audience, to 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 um, create a reaction in an audience. And even though Deliverance does that, at at its core, Deliverance has something to say. Yeah. I think you take each film as it is and then progress from there and discuss the film's merits. And I, I am I'm not inclined to think that rural horror is a problematic genre. No, not at all. I mean it's <laughs> any, any more than any more than urban horror is, you know, some you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean there's problematic films. Yeah, yes. Somebody did something stupid when they were making they were making a movie. Yeah. And, um, and we can talk about that too. I mean, absolutely. Well, I just want—I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on that. And so, I guess that's that's our kind of review of Deliverance. What I want you guys to do, if you feel up to it, is I want you to watch it. And I don't want to. What I didn't want to do is reveal everything about Deliverance for you. And I hope that we've intrigued you. In Jason, would you agree? I, we've intrigued people into giving this film from 1972 a chance, despite that one nighttime scene that we think we would like to see digitally remastered. <laughs> yeah you know and so that brings us to what we're going to do next week and i think it's my turn to decide yes and so audience since since you just got your primer primer however you want to pronounce it on werewolf by night i want to do werewolf by night next week 
spooky season. We haven't done a werewolf movie yet this Halloween, so I assume werewolf by night is about, uh, there's at least a werewolf in it, right? And so werewolf by night is what we're going to do. Sound good? Yep. All right, audience, if you like us and you think other people need to like us too, leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show and it helps us find new listeners. Uh, if you have a suggestion for us to uh, for a movie to watch or if you think we're wrong about something, reach out and email us at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. I haven't checked in a while because you guys never do, but I'll check immediately after this episode is done recording and I'll see if anybody's responded. Let us know what we should record. Let us know what we should analyze next. You can reach out to me at The Supper Test uh, on Twitter and you can find our Instagram page, which is curated by the wonderful Anya. Uh, at Instagram, you can just type in the search bar Max and Jason watch a movie and it will pop up immediately. And until next week when we do World for Night, bye-bye. Uh, I think that it's a masterpiece. Well, I I knew you were going to eventually suggest it, and I was I was dreading it a little bit because I, I do find it to be sometimes a very difficult movie to watch. My experience with She-Hulk was pretty solid because she was an Avenger for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, when she joined the FF, I kind of felt like that they were stealing her. <laughs> oh, yeah. There were all these back issue boxes at Paperback Paradise. And I don't know where you what you did in the back issue boxes, but I went to the back issue boxes to round out my X-Men collection. And in those back issue boxes, I discovered three characters that I would I, I've always sort of collected and tried to build up my collection. Shang-Chi. Werewolf by Night and Man Thing. <laughs> and <laughs> two out of three ain't bad. You know, I I'm a little jealous. Um, I know Anya loved it without even talking to her. I know it because yeah. it's the practical effects. So I, I know she loved it. The reasons she loved it are correct. Like I know that. I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, because because the practical effects are a joy to see.